And so here, as we gather on Good Friday, thinking about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's an emotional day. It's not a celebratory day. It's a day of what we call lament, which means that we're grieving something which was lost. I grew up in a church that was really centered around these church holidays, what we call the church calendar, and it was a big point of emphasis. And I remember Good Friday as a senior in high school. It was actually the first time that I had to speak from a stage. I have very bittersweet memories of that because it didn't go so well, in my opinion, but I felt like God allowed me to tell the truth about some stuff in my life and even use that as a window into what my calling might be. So even in the midst of loss and even in the midst of lament on a day like today, like a Good Friday, I think that there's good news waiting around the corner. Here at the end of our service today, Larry is going to give some good news from the Gospels, what the crucifixion means for you and for us today. Before we get there, though, I'm going to try to give us a window into the Old Testament, some of the predictive passages written hundreds of years before Jesus to see why did Jesus have to come? What is he trying to achieve? And what should we feel about that? So, as we look into the scriptures, will you pray with me? And so, Lord Jesus, we turn to you and we say, thank you. And we also say, we're sorry. Father, we know that your coming here has cost you so much. We know that your work on the cross was so transcendent, so painful, so important, so meaningful. And yet, Father, in some way, it is our sin which puts you there. And so, Father, we grieve that. Will you forgive us? Will you help us to turn away from our old ways and turn towards you? Father, as we look at your word today, your word which is true, which is unchanging, which is everlasting, may it form us, may it change our hearts, spirits, and minds to be more like you. Father, may we lament and may we grieve and may we let those things go to find the peace and forgiveness which is available through your son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it, or you can flip over to the notes tab, because we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53 today. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, because it speaks about what they call the suffering servant. Isaiah was written hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth, and yet as we read these words, it's going to feel like Isaiah was right there at the crucifixion. I'm going to read just a few verses from it, and this week I encourage you to read through all of Isaiah 53. It will really form you and challenge you and give you a a depth of richness and appreciation for who Jesus is and what he did for all of us. But I want to zoom in on a few verses today and highlight what they teach us about this crucifixion. So Isaiah chapter 53, I'm going to start in verse 4. And it says this, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was opposed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so too he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. 
for the transgression of my people, he was punished. As we read that passage together, what was your emotion? What did you notice in there? What did you, what did you feel? For me, it feels a lot like regret or lament. These are kind of two sides of the same coin, but regret often we use to talk about things that we wish wouldn't have happened, often because they're our own fault. I think about some things I regret in my life, and they range from the trivial to the very serious. You know, one of my first regrets, I can remember I was in like third grade, and I thought, I don't want to go to school today. And so I faked being sick and laid in my bed. And as my dad came to get me up for school, I said, oh, I'm sick. And he let me stay home. And as my dad drove out the driveway and down the block, I realized that it was actually a field trip that day to go to like this really awesome children's museum in our town. And I regretted that. I shouldn't have lied. It cost me a field trip. And that's fairly trivial for a third grader to do something like that, but it it marked me in some way. I knew that my decisions had a cost. You know, a couple weeks ago, I got news that my grandfather had passed away. And immediately with this news of this, this finality comes all of these regrets. You know, why didn't I call him more? Why didn't I visit him more? How come I didn't have one last trip to see him? wasn't necessarily things that I had done or just the circumstances, but that kind of mixture of both, it made me feel like this is something that I wish were different. There was grief and pain and loss and regret. Uh, Last year, we went on a retreat with church and we drove up into the snowy mountains of California. And when I booked to the retreat site, they told me in February, there's never any snow, there's never any ice. And of course, the weekend we went, they had cataclysmic snow and ice, the way, the likes of which they had never seen in that area before. And we were driving in the church van, 15 passenger van, filled with luggage, filled with food for 70 people for a weekend. And they have these signs up. Maybe you've seen these signs as you drive out east of here, and they say things like, chains ahead. And we thought that meant ahead of this place is a spot where you need to put on your chains. Uh, come to find out, that's not what they meant. They meant put your chains on now. Because as we rounded the curve on that gravel road and the snow and ice, we slipped off the road and into the ditch. And we couldn't make it out. We were trapped there with everybody's food, everybody's luggage. And there's a sense of loss and regret. This mistake that you have made has cost you something. Somebody else had to come back and take the rest of our passengers up to camp, and we tried to pull the van out and do all the tricks that we know how to do, you know, with a cardboard box to gain traction and extra weight and shifting, and it just wasn't happening. We were in the snowbank, and there was no way we were getting out on our own. No way at all. We had to call somebody, a friend of a friend who just lived up in the mountains, to come out in his new pickup truck with his winch and his tools and his gear and his mountain man equipment to pull us out of that snowbank. And I thought to myself, this guy has just had a baby two weeks ago. It's costing him to be out here. We ended up breaking some equipment on his truck to pull us out. It cost him something to be there. This regret, this lament, this mistake that we had made, this way that we ended up in the snowbank, ended up costing somebody else to fix our problem. You know, it wasn't just my mistake that cost me. It wasn't our mistake which cost us. It trickled out and it cost people who we didn't even know. You know, here on Good Friday, as we look at our life and our lament and our regrets, we see that it cost somebody who wasn't just us. Our sin, our mistakes, our lack of ability to control our lives, our lack of an ability to live as God intended, 
Our brokenness has cost someone else. And we remember here today that it cost Jesus Christ himself. So as we think about these ideas of lament and regret and the way that our mistakes have cost one another and also cost Jesus Christ something dear, I want to highlight three things from Isaiah 53 that maybe we can meditate on and give to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first of these truths from Isaiah 53 is that we don't value what we should. In fact, sometimes we value the exact opposite things. You know, look here in verses 3 and 4. It says about Jesus that he was despised and rejected, that he was like one from whom people hide their face. And in verse 4, it says that people considered him punished by God. In other words, they're looking at Jesus. They're looking at his suffering. They're looking at the way that he's going to the cross, and they thought it must be his fault. It must be something that he had done. Surely, if he was God, he wouldn't end up in this tragic end point, would he? This is what it means, that we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But that's not true, right? We know that Jesus was king of kings. We know that Jesus was God himself. How then is it true that he'll end up on this cross? Sometimes in life we value people who are in charge. There's authority, there's riches, there's wisdom, there's all these things that we look at somebody and we think, that person must have it all. Maybe it's the most popular person in school. Maybe it's the person who's further along the career path. And we think that person must be living right. That person must be blessed by God. And if we look at somebody in a more humble or a more lowly state, we think that person, it's probably their own fault. You know, I was actually reading over this coronavirus break, a lot of books, and one of them was talking about how in America, we tend to think of any success that we have in our life as something that we've earned by our own strength and our own good decisions. And any of our failures really tend to be outside circumstances that we can't control. Yet, we at the same time project on other people who haven't succeeded that it's their own fault or the product of their own circumstances. So in other words, we like to ascribe to our successes, our merit, and our failures, chance. But to other people's failures, their merit. There's just an unequal measuring stick that we apply. We've looked at Jesus and said, if you really had to go to the cross, it must have been something you have done. We look at other people suffering in our world. It must be your fault. We look at other people in need of forgiveness from us, and we say, this is a mistake that you made. You have to fix it. We want to let people feel the weight and the gravity of their mistakes, almost as if they slipped into the snowbank and you say, man, you should have put on some chains. You know, in fact, the first five or six or seven, I can't even remember, it felt like a million drivers would drive past us, look at our wheels and say, you don't have chains, and they would just drive on. And of course we should have put on chains on our van. Of course we should have done. But it wasn't helpful to be reminded about that after the fact. What was helpful was that somebody crossed through the barrier of our mistake and helped to pull us out. That's what Jesus did on Good Friday. He was punished by God, smitten by him, and afflicted, not because of his mistakes, but because of your mistakes and because of mine. So when we see Jesus humbling himself, we see that's what we should value. That's what we should be like. We need to follow him and his teachings, just like he taught us in the Gospels, that the greatest in his kingdom is servant of all. And here on Good Friday, we remember how he modeled that for us, even unto death on a cross. And that's 
Just like the second thing that I want to bring our attention to today. If Jesus was humble, obedient to death, even death on a cross, that's just like Isaiah 53 shows us here in verse 6. Despite all this lament, despite all this tragedy, despite all these mistakes that we have made, Jesus makes a way. Look here in verse 6 where it says that we, like sheep, have all gone astray, and each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is good news, I think, for two reasons. And the first is that Jesus really did bear our iniquities. Iniquities is kind of an old school word for sin or mistakes or shame or regret or lament that Jesus had those put on him on the cross so that you don't have to carry it anymore. He exchanged himself for you. That's amazing. And we remember that on Good Friday. But the second thing I remember is this sheep going astray piece. One of my favorite passages from the Gospels is when Jesus tells us about the shepherd who lost a sheep and how he left behind the 99 sheep in his flock to find one. In other words, even if one sheep is missing, it was worth Jesus seeking and finding it. And so we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And yet, we all, like sheep, have had a good shepherd come and find us. So even as we look at the cross today and we think about the guilt and regret and shame that we have that put him there, it is good news that he decided to make that decision for you and for me. And here on Good Friday, we remember that in the midst of our lament. And so that brings us to the third thing I'd like to call your attention to from the scriptures today, which is that in verse 8, where it tells us that none of Jesus' generation protested. You know, here it says that by oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? And remember, this is Isaiah predicting hundreds of years before the cross what was going to happen. And yet when we zoom in, especially in the Gospel of John, when it shows us what happened at the foot of Jesus' cross, all his disciples were gone, let alone any sort of townsperson or government official or priest or somebody in authority who could have spoken up for Jesus and said, this is an injustice. They were all gone. Nobody spoke up. Not really. John stayed. Mary, his mother, stayed. A few faithful women stayed. But in terms of people who could have made a difference in getting this thing stopped, they weren't there. They scattered. Nobody spoke up. You know, you look back and you think, if I had been there, maybe I would have said something. Maybe I would have done something. Maybe I would have put my life on the line for Jesus. And yet, I think the reality is, we have an opportunity to do that so often and yet so Frequently, we shirk back and we shrink back from this challenge to protest against the evil and injustice that's in our world, to speak up for Christ, and yet we simply don't. It's hard to get into someone's mess that they may have caused themselves and pull them out of their ditch. You know, I remember when I was a senior in college, we went on a mission trip to East Africa, country of Uganda. It's an amazing place, a beautiful place. The experience there changed my life. But about two and a half weeks into the trip, I got really, really sick, really ill. I remember being on the top bunk and not even being able to make it into the bathroom. And I apologize a little bit for the graphic nature of this, but I was sick all over our room. And everybody just ran out of there, except for one guy, my friend Matt. 
he stayed with me and he made sure that I was okay. And he took me into the restroom and he made sure that I got cleaned. And then he went back and cleaned up all of my mess. He was there with me in my sickness, everybody else. They went up to the main house so they could get a good night's sleep, but Matt stayed with me. And that really showed me that he cared for me, that he loved me, that despite the very good reasons to get out of that room and go save themselves, Matt was there. And he showed me his love and his care. And he, for me, acted like Jesus Christ, that when I was there in need, in that ditch, so to speak, he was there to pull me out. This is one of the reasons that my life was really changed in Africa. When I saw that following Jesus had a cost for people, that it was dangerous to be a Christian there at times, that the gospel was worth it anyway, it gave me a little bit of a window into the price that Jesus paid for you and for me on that cross. It wasn't easy. It wasn't trivial. It was unjust in many ways. It's not fair. Jesus took on him injustice so that we might find grace and peace in Jesus Christ. Now, I know that this reflection on Isaiah 53 hasn't been the happiest or most joy-filled venture into the Bible that we've ever had. And remember, on Good Friday, that's okay. This is what we do. We lament, we regret, and we remember. And then we also have a time where we offer our lament and regret to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you to participate with us in a time of worship. Solomon will be leading us in a few songs that are going to give you some space to think about. What do you lament? What do you regret? What do you need forgiveness for? And a time and a space to offer it to Jesus. After we sing those songs, Pastor Larry is going to come and give us a bit of a more hopeful message from the Gospels about what the crucifixion can be for you. Then Solomon's going to come and share more songs as we partake in the communion meal together. And so, let's turn to that time of worship. What a great message we've heard from Pastor Buzz today. And truly, this is a day of lament. It's a day of grieving because we remember that Jesus Christ died on this day. But that's why it's called Good Friday. It's called Good Friday because that which was terrible in the life of Jesus turned out to be good for all of humanity. And that is because the death of Jesus Christ makes all the difference in the world. We live in a world today that is consumed with the reality of death. COVID-19 has taken over the entire world and we're constantly hearing the news reports of how many people have died in this city or that city and where the hot spots are in the world. But let's not forget that there is one death, there's one person who died who made the difference and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about the death of Jesus Christ, it is interesting to me that of all the things that scholars and skeptics debate about the life of Christ, they certainly don't debate the death of Jesus Christ. It is an undisputed historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth died at the hands of the Roman governor Pontius Pilate right there just outside of the city gates of Jerusalem somewhere in or around AD 33. The gospel writers are clear that Jesus died and I like how each one of them frames the story of his death with varying detail each author reflects on his death, bringing in different characters and different angles of, of what took place on that terrible day, the day that we call Good Friday. And yet they all share the same phrase, the same common phrase. Matthew uses the phrase, when they had crucified him. Mark uses the phrase, uh, and they crucified him. Luke uses the phrase, 
there they crucified him. And John uses the phrase, here they crucified him. All the gospel writers tell in amazing detail the death of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament goes on to describe why Jesus died. The fact that he died is indisputable. But the question really that I want to wrestle with just for a moment today is, why did he die? And this, for me, brings hope to all of us as Christ followers, because we revel in the death of Christ for four reasons, four basic reasons I would like to suggest to you today. One, because it is the proof of God's love for us. Someone's listening, watching right now that are wondering, has God ever demonstrated his love to me? How do I know that God loves me? Some of us in our world are just confused about what God's love really means. How could God be a loving God when we see all the suffering that's around our world? And yet the scriptures tell us we have proof of God's love because he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Very rarely will, a righteous, will someone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's an amazing statement. While we were still sinners, not only the fact that God loved us, but as undeserving as we are, we revel in the death of Christ because it is the proof of his love for us. John Piper, a very famous pastor, suggests we know the quality of love by the benefits that come from that love. For example, if I were to help, if someone were to help me with an exam, I might feel loved. If someone were to help me find a job, I might feel a certain kind of love. If someone were to help uh, me into a home, I would uh, into a home to purchase, I would feel a certain kind of love. If someone rescued me from a regime of of uh, a persecution or terrorism and give me a life of freedom, I would feel a certain kind of love. But if somebody rescued me from eternal damnation, a separation from God, and put me in a place where I was acceptable to God forever and ever and ever, there would be the ultimate expression of love. And this is the love that God has for us, that even though we were sinners, he died. He sent his son, Jesus. We revel in the death of Christ because it's the proof of God's love. It's not only the proof of God's love, but it's also the full payment for our sins. We revel in the death of Christ because at the cross, Jesus paid for all of our sins. And this introduces us to that amazing uh, doctrine of the atonement. And the word atonement comes from the Hebrew word uh, from which we understand as kapoor or uh, the, the, the covering, the, the lid of the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, there was the Ark of the Covenant and that covering of the ark was known as the mercy seat. And that's the word that we derive uh, that comes to us in the word atonement. The word atonement means that our sins were covered, our sins were paid for. And the high priest once a year in the Old Testament would go into that holy of holies and he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it over the mercy seat. And their covering would be made, atonement would be made. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. In Romans 3.25, the Apostle Paul says that God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. 
Literally, Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus brings forgiveness to all of us. And, and the beautiful thing about this idea of atonement has uh, uh, two sides of the same coin. One side is that the payment has been made, and the other side is the sentence has been served. And what that means is that if I were found guilty of stealing something and I stood before a judge, Jesus could stand in my place and say, I'm paying for what was stolen. He would put down the money for whatever it was that was stolen. And that's great, but justice has not totally been served. Only until Jesus would then step in and take the penalty of what it meant that I stole that item would I be fully atoned for. You see, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he paid the price, but he also served the time. He satisfies the wrath of God. That's why we are accepted in Christ. That's why there's no more wrath over us. There's no more enmity between us and God. And we revel in the death of Christ because it is by his death that we stand before God fully loved, fully accepted in Christ Jesus. And that's such a beautiful thing. I hope we revel in that today. It's the proof of God's love. It's the full penalty being paid for our sin. Thirdly, it's the power that cancels sin's dominion. And this is absolutely amazing to me. When I think of what Jesus did at the cross, you know, when Jesus walked this earth, he said, whoever sins is a slave of sin, John 8, 34. And a couple of verses later, Jesus said, so I say to you, whom the Son of Man sets free, he shall be free indeed. Jesus came to free us from the tyranny of sin. We don't have to sin like we used to sin. We have been set free. In fact, I love the fact that the scriptures tell us in Romans 6, verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For whoever has died has been freed from sin. Later, just a couple of verses, chapter 6, verse 14, Paul writes, For sin shall no longer be your master, for you are not under law, but under grace. The reason we revel in the death of Christ is because the power cord, not just the penalty of sin, but the power of sin has been removed from our lives. What a difference it makes to know that Jesus Christ has freed us, that we don't have to be the people we used to be. I was just talking to someone just this morning. Uh, he's a dear friend of mine, and he reminded me of his own conversion experience, his marriage on the brink of disaster, losing, potentially losing his career, uh, uh, just bothered and messed up in his heart and life and was just so frustrated and angry. And then uh, through a, a bunch of circumstances, God got a hold of his heart. And he was just reflecting, as he often does, how his life has changed, how he's now plugged into the body of Christ, how now he has joy in serving in the body of Christ. His marriage is restored. His moving up in his position in his company. God has restored everything in his life. And he says to me over and over, how great it is that I'm not the old Brian. I'm a new creation. And this is true for all of us. We are no longer the people we used to be. We have been set free. It is the proof of God's love. It is the full penalty being paid for our sin. It is the power that cancels sin's uh, uh, dominance in our lives. And lastly, and this is beautiful, it's the, 
It's the pattern for the way we're to live our lives. You know, when Jesus, through the Gospels, met people, he said, he said, if anyone would come after me, Luke chapter 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus said, our following him must be a daily experience. This is so amazing that it's not a one and, one and done. It's not just we come to Jesus and then we're sort of, we've got that finished in our lives. It's an everyday picking up of the cross and following Jesus. This is why we marvel and glory in the cross because it's the pattern for the way we live our lives. Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of, Man, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What an amazing, glorious, beautiful truth that is. Paul writes, we always carry around in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be seen in our mortal body. I'm thinking today of all the people who are sacrificing great things. I think of our first responders and people that work in grocery stores and, and, and people that are out there sort of keeping things going. And you know, many of those people are doing that for a check. But we who are Christ followers, we're doing this because we know that the way we bring life to our world is through dying to ourselves. We die to ourselves so that life might be seen. You know, Paul writes in Romans 8, he says, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, or sword? He says, As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor anything else in all of God's creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think it's time that people out there in our world start seeing the life that we have because we have died to the old life. So, that's why we revel. We revel in the death of Christ. It is the proof of God's love. It is the payment for our sin. It is the power that cancels sin's dominance. And it is the pattern for how to live. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for this day where we memorialize, but we also honor and glorify your name for the gift of life through the death of your son. And thank you, Lord, we know that he rose from the grave, and without his resurrection, there would be no payment made. But we thank you today, Lord, that we can revel in the fact, knowing that this is how you love us, and this is how we are to live as your followers. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And now I'm going to just ask you to take a moment and prepare for a communion time during this last little worship set that we're going to have. You can get the elements, gather them together. You know, Hebrews 2.14 says that because the children are flesh and blood, he too entered our humanity so that by his death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So, beloved, as you take those elements, whenever you're ready with your family, remember, Jesus entered our bodies. He gave us his body. He shed his blood. 
so that he could conquer death, the last enemy. The enemy that we see all over the world today has been conquered, and even more so, the spiritual enemy of spiritual death being forever separated from God. Today, we celebrate that truth. Thank you, Jesus.